0: grew that beard so quick
1: yeah i know i did it's crazy
0: i first saw your little camera and i was like wow michael's looking very butch today and then i was like what is it about them that's looking butch today because their (sighs) hair is still long and then i saw it and i was like oh i forgot all about bearded michael
1: yeah i know it's a thing it's a hold on one second
0: i love you
1: okay just
0: okay
1: to... i know i know
0: that's cute we're gonna figure it out it's gonna be okay what's going on
1: oh you know skeeter's a bit of a he's he's a he's a tough dog to get to know a bitch oh, he's a bitch that's really what i'm trying to say he's
0: a bitch he's a lover he's a child he's a mother
1: he does have motherly tendencies he's actually he's, he's very saint. soothing
0: he's a saint i will not be ashamed <sighs> <laughs>
1: I guess this is good documentary evidence in case this comes to bite us in the ass, but there's kids that came onto the property and were sledding, like, in the morning because it snowed. Mm-hmm. Skeeter was barking and we didn't realize they were on the property. You know, just...
0: Yeah, I get that. That was such a thing when I lived in the woods was getting into fights with neighbors about our dogs.
1: Really? Was that really a thing?
0: It was a huge phenomenon. It was like top five sources of stress living in the woods oh
1: don't tell that to me hava don't say that
0: well i was in a very different situation i was around a bunch of like washington rednecks who were like literally threatening to shoot our dogs so
1: no, that's the opposite like yeah my fear is that we have like a a rich karen next door that's gonna Mm -hmm. like sue us if their kid gets bitten by our beautiful beautiful little dog Hava what do I do
0: I don't know I mean there are two options like one is to try to train your dog more and two is to try to get people to stay off of your area where your dog is
1: I think it's probably just train the dog more and let the kids have fun yeah that's the nice thing to do
0: how are you otherwise oh uh, (laughs) (laughs) that good huh
1: well, you know, we're snowed in, so it's nice. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's romantic. It's picturesque. It's beautiful. We got the wood stove going. We got some wood delivered. It's very cottage core.
0: Yeah, that sounds cute.
1: It takes some getting used to. That's it. That's really it. How, how are you?
0: Bruch Hashem, I'm well. I am enjoying the snowed in day. I had quite a debacle recently. I was having really bad tooth pain, and I thought I had a tooth infection, and I was really freaked out, and my boyfriend had to come home from work and get me, to take me to the dentist for emergency dentist time and then it was a popcorn kernel (laughs) stuck in my tooth in a weird way so that was embarrassing for me.
1: Did you try flossing?
0: Yeah of course I tried flossing. He had to use a special tool to get it out. Really? Yeah. So it was legitimate, like, but also was embarrassing that I was so freaked out
1: about well, it. What did the tool look like?
0: I don't look at that. When I'm in the dentist, I like go deep inside into my mind palace. No,
1: you can't bring a story about going to the dentist and having a weird tool that removes a weird kernel from your mouth and not describe it.
0: Counterpoint, that's exactly what the Talmud would do.
1: It is what the Talmud would do. The
0: Talmud would be. would be like, oh, it's a flieberflorgen. What is that? I don't know. That's your problem, future generations. <laughs> I just think
1: that someone like you would rise above Above the level of the Talmud,
0: that is not true. I would sink into the muck below it. But enough about me. Let's talk about our guest, listeners, patrons. Win me your ears. Welcome to the show, my friend, your friend, friend of the pod, ladies' man, man's man, man about town, author of True Believer: The Rise and Fall of Stanley Abraham Reisman. Abe,
2: welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Oh, hi. It's so nice to see you. Hi and hi. <laughs> how are you? Hi hi. Vic, I am. I never know how deep I should go on in jokes about Jewish stuff on when I'm on a Jewish podcast because like I'll appear on some podcasts and I'll be like, well, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu said, and they'll be like, please say Moses because most people aren't going to know anything about Judaism mm-hmm. here. And then other ones, people just start tossing out zingers that make no sense to me, and I'm feeling like the dumb dumb. So. How do you sort of like, do you have a rule of thumb for yourself about like what level of detail to get into? I honestly, the
0: way I envision the content of our podcast is that like, in my head, we have like five or six different listener groups, and each one of them receives about 10% of the content, including (laughs) jokes, and nobody gets 100% of everything there's no like top group. It's just everybody gets something in their bucket.
2: Everyone gets something in their bucket. And that's the slogan you're going to run on when you run for mayor, you know? I will not be doing that. I feel like we're too close to the guillotine. I can't run (laughs) for office. Oh my God. I know. I Not to go on too much of a tangent, but basically like, don't you feel terrible on some level? like Just on an interpersonal level for every celebrity right now who has to pretend they have any idea what they're doing. And that includes like politicians. Like just, we're all so completely effed right now in like a political sense that it's just funny to me when you see like, I don't know. I just feel so connected now to the stars because I know they have as little an idea of what's going to happen tomorrow as I do. And we're all, like, pretty terrified, you know? It's- right. The Great Equalizer. The Great Equalizer, exactly. I
0: can't believe to live the reality show where it's you, me, and Kim Kardashian trapped in a radiation bunker fighting off oh, cannibals. please.
2: And we all have to learn about each other's cultures, and, and that'd be great. And we all make friends in the end. And we all make friends in the end. That sounds very nice.
1: I've been watching this HBO Max show that kind of has this as a- Oh, no, Station as, Eleven? Yeah, as a sub Yeah, I
2: know. Here's the thing. I Don't tell me anything, because I- I know I'm going to love it. I, Patrick Somerville, the showrunner, I loved his last show, Maniac, which was just a miniseries on Netflix that like virtually nobody watched, but I did a lot of coverage of it, Vulture, because I thought it was really interesting.
1: It's one of my girlfriend's favorite shows.
0: I watched it and didn't like
2: it. You didn't like Maniac. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, Station Eleven, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy, but I have not watched yet because in the state of chaos that the world is in and also the state of chaos that I'm in because I'm writing my second book right now and editing it with my wonderful spouse, we're not really watching a ton of stuff. Like, I feel like over the course of the pandemic, I've lost my attention span for watching things. Am I alone in that? Do you guys feel because I know other people have like gone way deeper into just I binge all day and don't have experiences. You know, I pretty much exclusively play video games and watch TV at the same time. I never do one or the other. Totally fair. None of this is me, by the way, judging anybody's habits. Whatever is happening to us to keep us our heads above water at this point. As long as it's, like, not actively causing harm to others, I am so not judgmental about any daily strategy that anybody has.
0: Well, I tell you what, Abe, if you were on our show every week, we could definitely make hour-long episodes, because... You keep us on tangents. I know, that's the trouble. Okay, let's
2: let's give the people what they wanted.
0: Abe, when you asked to come back on the show, you said you wanted to do something about Torah laning, Torah chanting. Tell the listeners why you wanted to do that. Sure. And tell us.
2: (laughs) So, you know, I'm Jewish, in case you couldn't tell so far. I was raised Reform. And became bar mitzvah. You know, I had my bar mitzvah ceremony when I was 13. It's funny today. And I think about it today. There was this big snowstorm in the East Coast. And uh, the day of my bar mitzvah, there was the biggest blizzard that Chicago had seen in about 20 years. January 2nd, 1999. Mm -hmm. My Torah portion that I read, that I chanted, was uh, from Vayechi which is the last chapter of Genesis, or the last parsha, I should say, of Genesis. Very long story short, various things conspired over the past few years to A, bring me back to Judaism, and B, make me continually have to revisit Vayechi. Basically, over the course of the past few years, I kept thinking, what if I tried laning, like doing my Torah portion again? Like what mm-hmm. if I tried to learn it again? What would that be like? But it ke- I kept seeing like too big of a task. And then a year ago, I started studying biblical Hebrew with a tutor over Zoom. We reached a point where these signs had built up. And then I found out that this beloved neighbor child who's two years old, who we like a lot, his middle name, it turned out, was the name of a character from my Torah portion. I went, okay, that's it. That's the last sign I need. And I went to my Hebrew tutor and I was like, I want to lay my portion. So I prepared for that and I did it. And on December 18th, of this past year, so just a few weeks ago, I went to the congregation that I attend, and I uh, went up and did the third Aliyah for uh, Vahi, which was which is the section where uh, Joseph brings—well, he's already brought his sons Ephraim and Manasseh before Jacob, but Jacob is dying and blesses Ephraim and Menasha, but he gives the younger of the two— the greater blessing, which is, of course, a callback to his own blessing situation. So anyway, I laned it. It was just a complete joy. It was so wonderful to be able to experience that and to prepare for it. It wasn't just the performing, although I am like a failed theater kid. Just the preparation was such a fascinating experience for figuring out the Torah. Like, I really sincerely don't think you can can get what's going on in the Torah without the chanting or at least without reading mm. reading the masoretic trop because once you start doing it you realize oh my god there are all these like linguistic cues in here like there's things that are basically like italics and things that are bold and things that are commas and things that are semicolons and places that the phrase might get divided up differently than you might assume if you're not given, because you're not giving any, being given any punctuation you know so mm-hmm. this is that And also, it's just so much easier to pronounce and memorize once you're singing it. So anyway, I could go on and on. But that's why I've had laning on the mind lately was I was doing it. I hope I can continue to do it. I'm preparing right now to do Yitro, which is the Parsha with the Ten Commandments. And I'm planning to do the Ten Commandments. We're short a rabbi right now at my congregation. So they're kind of desperate for people to lane. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? It wasn't as hard to do to figure it out and then perform as I thought it was going to be. It was still challenging. But I thought, if I'm going to do it again, let's, like, go gadol or go home.
0: Right. And I assume it only gets easier the more times you do yeah, it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I'm doing the Aliyah of Yitro where the Ten Commandments are read, which I am going to be able to chant. I feel like that, that if nothing else, that's a great party trick to be able to chant the Ten Commandments in the original ancient Hebrew, you know?
0: Yes, yes. That's a flex. That would be a flex,
2: yes, exactly. And I I hope it doesn't come to that, but you know.
0: Michael, did you have a bar mitzvah? Did you lane anything at your bar mitzvah?
1: (sighs) Did I lane? Did Uh, you chant anything? Yeah, yeah, I laned. It was lane, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I did the Torah, I refused to do the haftarah.
2: Why, why not?
1: That was not a cool, I did not have a cool synagogue experience Uh, growing up. First of all, stucco. It was a New England synagogue with stucco on the outside, and I just thought it was awful. It just looked like I was looking at sandpaper every time I walked into the building. And the second thing, which I think is just more apocryphal, is that there was an organ. There was an organ in the synagogue. Think about that. Don't think about that. It was bad. (laughs) And the canter that we had that was cool, that was kind of sassy, wendy she left by the time it was my bar mitzvah so we had a very kind probably nice person who i was you know 13 and wasn't going to get along with
0: right even more jaded than you are now
1: oh yeah way more jaded than i am as a 13 year old i was much more jaded than i am now but i want to know some of the secrets have you discovered any like secret meanings hidden
2: yes you sur- you discover all kinds of stuff so for example let's start with the first line of the entire Torah. The traditional translation is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, as I'm sure you've discussed on your wonderful podcast, there's a lot of debate about the beginning, like about the first word, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of like, is it as God was beginning? Is it in the, or in one of the beginnings or whatever? Whatever. That, I'm not going to talk about that for right now. What's interesting about the cancellation... Here, let me let me pull it up so I can actually sing it properly. I don't want to be making this up because it's sacred text.
0: I hear you, but also we make it up all the time, so...
2: So, it's Breshit bara Elohim, et ha-shamayim And what's interesting is there's this uh, Masoretic, this little diacritical, little mark, under Elohim. And this particular diacritical signifies... That this is the end of a phrase. That basically there should be a comma, a semicolon, a period, an end of a parenthesis. Something is breaking up the verse at this particular mark. What's interesting is it's Elohim. So you have brashit. Let's just assume it means in the beginning. I don't feel like having a debate about that for right now. Let's say in the beginning, brashit, bara, which is to create. And it's specifically a verb that only God can do. Elohim. That's supposed to be a phrase. Brashit, bara, Elohim. And then there's et ha'shamayim et ha'aretz, which is the heavens and the earth, but we're supposed to think of what is Breshit bara Elohim as a unique phrase. Now, you can get crazy and kabbalistic and say brashit bara Elohim like the beginning created God, whoa, like mind-blown, or you can do what I do, which is my personal interpretation of why that's there, is it supposed to signify that the creative act was this important thing in and of itself, in and in, in of itself, independent of whatever was being created. What is being said there is like, Breshit bara Elohim, You're saying, in the beginning, God created. Pause. The heavens, the earth. Like that's the examples that you're giving. Now, this is just like my heretical interpretation, but this is the kind of thing you can come up with once you start looking at the cancellation, because that diacritical always means break up the phrase here and break up the phrase can mean a lot of things, but it's telling you that something's happening there. So that's just one example. I could go on and on, but this kind of stuff has started to completely fascinate. Well, this sounds
0: like a great opportunity to get our actual Talmud in here.
2: Great, let's get that Talmud in here.
0: Yes, we are going to ye old Megillah 24b, where the rabbis are having a good old-fashioned dish fest.
2: Oh my god, it's so funny. I loved this passage. Thank you for introducing me to it.
0: My pleasure. So here's what they have to say. Amarav Asi, uveshani lo isha et Tanya אין מורידין ליפנוי התיבה, לאanje בישאן, ולאanje ביד חניא, ולאanje דירונין. Tironin. שקורין shekorin ולא אמר imale pasul atta kalach. את At אמר so here's what all that nonsense meant. They were hanging out and talking about shit. And Ravasi said, "A man from Haifa or Beit She'an." is not allowed to be the person who lifts their hands and does the priestly benediction thingy, like the little Live Long and Prosper sign that we're all familiar with, I'm sure. And we learn this fact also in a baraita that people from Beit She'an or from Beit Haifa or from Tif Onin can't pass before the Ark or do this priestly benediction thing because they pronounce Aleph and Ayin the same. They don't distinguish between them, which is the predominant pronunciation today is that most people in shuls in America don't pronounce the difference between olive and ayin. They go on to dish even more. Rev Chia said to Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Yehuda Hanassi, if you were a Levite, you would be disqualified from singing on the bima because your voice is very ugly. Offended by this remark, Rabbi Shimon went and told his father, and his father said, go say back to him, When you reach the verse, and I will wait upon the Lord, which is Isaiah 817, won't you be a maligner and a blasphemer? And the reason he says that is because in that verse, we have this verb, which if you don't pronounce the difference between a chet and a hay, changes the definition from I will wait into I will strike, a.k.a. I will strike the Lord. So all
2: kinds of good stuff. In this Talmud passage, I love it. He's just straight up like local rivalries and making fun of people's accents, which it's nice to be reminded that the rabbis of blessed memory enjoyed the same kind of like mildly xenophobic pleasures that we do to this day, you know?
0: Right. These xenophobic pleasures have xenophobic
2: ends. They do, unfortunately, <laughs> yes.
0: Michael, your thoughts. Uh,
1: yeah I like what Abe said. Yeah, it reminds me I remember like in college I was having political conversations with people, and people telling me that like America is the most xenophobic place on earth. Everyone is like xenophobic and like apparently the rabbis are too.
2: It's like regional differences in sort of comparing the degree to which you're virtuous based on the population you're from or the degree to which you can't actually participate in Torah based on where you're from. Like it's all this sort of these assumptions you're making based on the arbitrariness of geography and language.
0: I was thinking about completely different things. I initially started loving this passage because I do pronounce the difference between olive and lain And so I wanted some Talmud to support my own inflated ego and perception of myself. And that's mm. how I came upon this, but also, well, two things. One, it's very interesting that this passage is basically talking about how meaning of Torah is changed by pronunciation And yet the dominant American Judaism pronunciation of the Torah elides a ton of meaning. Just like oh. what you were talking about with your trope, like totally. even if you're doing the trope, you're probably still pronouncing aleph and ayin the same, which means yeah. that we're losing all kinds of stuff. There's
2: so much that gets lost. There's this code, and the code has so many layers. There's the chanting. There's the pronunciation of different letters. That yeah, exactly. We flatten in modern Hebrew or or modern renditions of biblical Hebrew. You know, there's there's so much that's buried in the, the you know the digeishes the the dots. Right. Um, You know, which can affect pronunciation sometimes and not other times. It's a beautiful mystery. The thing that I keep coming back to when I do all this laning and whenever I do any Torah study is just how ambiguous everything is. And that often comes down to pronunciation of letters and words. I mean, I've been reading Job and this comes up a lot because the language is so weird and there's so many words that nobody knows in Job. But you'll have the rabbis going like, well... This sur- this sounds like this word, and that's based on the sounds of the consonants. And you're making certain assumptions about what the consonants sound like, you mm-hmm. know. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about here.
0: And the other thing I was intrigued by when I was looking at this passage is theoretically, if we're gonna be stark about our halakha, <laughs> almost everyone in America today is like disqualified. It, yes,
2: right, because this is basically saying you have to be from my town in order to do the priestly benediction.
0: So where we ended up halachically is that Mishnah Brura, which is by this halachic person, the Chofetz Chaim, ended up coming down with this halachic ruling that if no one in your area distinguishes between Aleph and Ayin, essentially, like, if there's no one around available to do (laughs) the prestige pronunciation, then you're allowed to have someone on the Bema who doesn't distinguish between them. So essentially it ends up getting changed from this sort of like strict disqualification down
2: into Well, you're talking about. I mean, I get where they're coming from. I mean, this is talking about the priestly benediction as opposed to being a tana, you know, and like reciting the Torah, but it's a similar principle. where like, you're talking about a period where the stuff that we're seeing in writing here was oral. So you had to have your pronunciation exactly correct so you can have the correct information get conveyed because mm-hmm. it's not written down yet. You know, you're you're conveying the oral Torah orally and if you are mispronouncing words or pronouncing letters in a way where that, yeah, it can be like like Isaiah, like we're saying there. Like if you're chanting the book of Isaiah before it's written down, yeah, if you mispronounce it, it can sound like I'll strike the Lord and that'd be a terrible thing to say.
0: You know? <laughs> right. No one would ever want us to punch God in the face. That no, we no, on this that's... podcast we would never mention such a thing. Michael, what are you thinking?
2: That's interesting.
1: I didn't think about the difference. It's really interesting to imagine what you were saying, Abe, about the stakes were probably different, I don't know, higher, maybe, then, because this stuff wasn't written down.
2: Right. You had people who were just living computers who had, and I'll, let me tell you, one of the ways you remember this stuff is through the cancellation. It is so much easier to memorize Torah if you can sing it. Is Mishnah cantalized? I don't think so, right? Well,
0: it is not strictly in the same way that Torah is, but there are communities that have extant sort of patterns that they use for oh, Mishnah. I
1: wonder if they're as old as the Masoretic, uh, you know, text. They are not. Oh, okay. So they don't count people.
2: <laughs> well, they're not as old as to the Masoretic diacriticals, but the, cha- you know, the music of the Torah, that's one of my favorite things to try and, like, wrap my head around. You know, we talk about the text, but there was an original soundtrack to the Torah, you know? <laughs> right. A series of soundtracks, not just the one, but, like... You know, the Torah, there was a sound, and we'll never know what that is. We didn't even, because the Masoretics didn't start putting stuff down until the sound had evolved into what it had evolved into. But like the Israelites, you know, Torah was a banger. You know, that was that was a song that you could play.
0: Right, right. Another little interesting piece I want to throw into the pot of our conversation that I brought is this quick little line from Brachot 55b, where we learn, Kol hako rei so whoever does their recitation of the Shema, and they are precise with their pronunciation from the letters, like they differentiate between Aleph and Ayin, and they separate all the words from each other, kahinum is made cooler for that person. The fires oh. of hell are decreased, so even though we have this halachic sort of workaround to allow us to still have people on our bimas even though pronunciation has changed over the years you can still get some like divine prestige for being fancy about
2: it and extra credit points are really what matters when you got to get that temperature in hell dialed down
0: right know? exactly wait, i wait. want it to be comfy what 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 wait, wait. does that imply
1: that Everyone goes there? Like or, or in the <laughs> only in the event that you qualify to go there. Right. And you also Right. It's a it.
2: backup. Like in the unlikely event that you go to hell, it won't be as hot as it could otherwise be. That's okay, not the worst well, promise.
0: You right. Know? I mean, I don't know what all theological work this statement is doing. If I had to guess at the rabbis ideas, I would say that they probably believe that gehinom right it's like a temperature and when you cool it you're cooling it for everyone you're like moving the whole yeah. genome sphere towards a better situation uh, it's like tikkun okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay okay that makes a little bit more sense yes that makes more sense to me well that's nice
0: yeah that's right so you're
2: welcome everyone in hell for all the work i've been doing on your behalf oh for my, my charitable work Sounding a lot like uh, the Nazarene right now. You got to watch <laughs> out for that, okay? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I was just learning about, speaking of Talmud and and the hanged man, mm-hmm. um, I was learning about the excised parts of Talmud. Maybe you know more about this than I do. The parts that we don't include in Talmud anymore because they're super anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. Which I was not familiar with. Most importantly, the specious gossipy rumors about the parentage of Jesus, which I <laughs> love. I I only recently learned about this from my Hebrew tutor, but I love that there's like, cause the Tom is being written not within living memory of the time of Jesus, but it's close enough afterward that you can still have accounts in there that are like, yeah, you know, Rav Yohanan's cousin's uh, grandpa. Yeah. He told him it was, uh, it was this Roman soldier. Yeah. That was Jesus's actual dad. Like it's all just this sort of like hearsay. And Mm -hmm. I love that because they're still close enough to it that it'd be like me saying, you know, oh, well, in the early 19th century, my family was doing thus and such or like whatever. Right. It's still, it's it's a reminder of how close early Christianity and early rabbinic Judaism were temporally. It's happening Mm -hmm. at the same time. It's the same set of questions that they're trying to deal with and coming to very different conclusions. So anyway.
0: Right. I don't know what that guy was up to during that time period but part of me wonders if he like might have been a, a c-list rabbi that was mentioned in the oral tradition of the talmud at some point and then he mm. got cut later it was like oh that guy really went
2: off the rails we got to take out all references to now, him. that is interesting who knows oh. yeah that's what i love is that there's so much that's in jewish texts and tradition and experience especially texts there's so many gigantic gaping question marks you know you just like, you just have to, you're never going to really know. So you get to be creative as long as you're modest, you know?
0: Right. I mean, part of what I get at with this whole thing, we have this whole Talmud passage we had about pronunciation and your whole thing that you brought about diacritics and all that stuff is like, it's an easy trap to fall into to think that there is a, the Torah and the Halakha out there that we can go find and get them and learn. yeah, Yeah um nope but we're all collectively collaboratively making it up all the time
2: fudging through it and i love that you get that yeah i think it's a time of renewal and radical reinterpretation because you know this is a microcosm of what's happening throughout society right now which is just this mass realization of like oh it's all made up oh okay Like whether it's politics or economics or the arts or whatever, there's a lot of, oh, this thing that I thought was solid is actually a lot more gaseous, you know, or at least liquid. And that means that it can get reshaped. You know, it doesn't have to be what I thought it was because what I thought it was is not permanent, nor did it even really exist in the first place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I wonder how much of that is like a millennial thing and people younger than millennial. Uh, another way of saying what you just said, Abe is like, yeah, everything is bullshit.
2: Everything is bullshit, but that's but that's a good opportunity, I think. Oh so, yeah, it's a good opportunity. <laughs> Cuz things like if everything is bullshit, then that means why not have why not believe in our good bullshit, you know? As opposed to uh, there's so many nihilists out there among our cohort who go everything is bullshit and then the next step is just Question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, die someday. You know, like there's no real plan beyond that. Yeah. Whereas for me, when it comes to Jewish texts, at least, yeah, it's all made up. That's what's beautiful. You you get to, it's like, it's like in some ways, I'm not saying this in terms of religious content, but it's like something that uh, a friend of mine, this arch atheist Jewish friend of mine said about tarot. She got really into tarot and she is not woo woo in any way. But she said what she loved about Tara was it was a mediated conversation. It's two people talking, and the cards, the draw, causes you to have – it prompts it prompts questions. It prompts questions and conversations, and it provokes you. And then you have the conversations in the present day, in the moment that you're having with the person, and you learn things. And that's how I feel about Torah. It's a provocation. It's not that it doesn't have the answers. It's there to, like, make you ask all the right questions.
1: It Reminds me of what you said about uh, your analysis of Bereshit. sheet.
2: Well, what is it? How does it remind you of that?
1: That God created like the point yeah. is to create instead of creating the answer. You just create
2: you create exactly what's well, the same. And it's the same thing when the at the, the theophany at the revelation at Sinai revelation of the Torah what what do the people say I can't remember how it goes in Hebrew but they say you know we're, we without even understanding we're going to do what you've told us
0: right we'll do and we will
2: hear we will do and we will hear exactly I can't I can never remember the exact phrasing but that's it's a big part of how this works and of course you can interpret all these things in different ways but that's what I'm saying they're prompts the Torah is a prompt and a provocation for me more so than a book that tells me exactly how to live my life.
0: Yeah, and I think that really recontextualizes how you can understand different people's Judaism when you understand it as how they've chosen to respond to a prompt. That's a
2: really interesting way of putting it. But I think that, wow, yeah, yeah, totally. You're completely right. When you see it as like divergent evolution from the same text, that's when it starts to get really interesting for me. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, and- the mediated conversation thing is, is also the same thing I like about Talmud, you know, I'm because I spend a lot of my life arguing with people about different Jewish things. And I find that the conversations where we have a a mutual prompt, a mutual text between yes. us to argue about tend to yes. be much more productive than ones where we're just arguing about our own feelings and thoughts. And having that shared ground of text for me is like an important part of how Jewish discourse ideally works.
2: I completely agree. The Hevruta model is is beautiful. My spouse and I have been sort of doing little mini Hevruta in that, you know, it's so, the world is so effed up that like, the thing that calms me down, I cannot believe I've turned into this person, but the thing that calms me down is studying the Bible. Like, I can't get into like watching TV and zoning out anymore because I'm so completely concerned about everything that's going on. The only thing that feels like it has the weight necessary and, and is engaging enough that I can fall deep into trying to decode it is Bible texts, biblical mm-hmm. texts. Yeah, and now that I yeah. know enough Hebrew that I can sort of take stabs at trying to translate it myself, it's very, it's very engrossing. I've found that it's been a huge balm, but it's also, like I'm saying, giving me provocations, moments to go, well, like, for example, when I was reading through Job, it's like, well, what is this? I'm not saying Job gives me the answers, but Job has all these questions that are exactly the right questions to be asking about suffering,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And Job and Kohelet, Ecclesiastes as well, are very uh, provocative question asking biblical texts. Totally.
1: I think it's funny what you said about this process is is a bomb or a solve. I was thinking about that. All three of us are here, different versions of neurotic Yes. All of us dealing with the time that we live in that kind of blows in certain ways. and Yes. Loss of faith in institutions and, and good ways Not of bad. the world we were promised. Not the world we were promised. And, like, we all came to the same substance from slightly different forms of neurosis and trauma and disillusionment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is why you go to the Torah, right? Because, I mean, I keep thinking about it in terms of, like... If this, if if I had been born, if I had been born a Jew with my exact personality, but the circumstances of what my family and my father's side was living through 200 years ago, all of my geekdom towards Marvel and Star Wars and all of that would have just been dedicated to Torah. Sure. I would have been completely fixated on the Torah cinematic universe, you know, the shared universe of Torah and how everything connects and all the references and the narrative, and how the narrative makes sense, and how it doesn't make sense, and canon, and non-canon, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff was just me yearning for Torah on some level. And then eventually, I figured out that this is the best way for me to use all these impulses because I'm not paying Disney a fucking dime for it. You can believe, yeah, that yeah. Like. I know you don't want Disney to get on your ass for this podcast, but like, <laughs> I I can't keep watching. Geek stuff and decoding geek stuff where it's like, well, am I doing this so Bob Iger can like buy a 14th yacht? You know, like why am I doing this? Whereas with the Bible, no one's winning, myself included sometimes, you know, but like it's 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 something I get to scratch that itch in a way that's genuinely edifying and that is not for the lack of a better word, corporate, you know, and I—I I don't know. It's something that really helps me in these difficult, in these challenging times. I wish
1: the listeners could see you right now, just like dark, bright light. Oh, just on your the room face. got dark,
2: and I—I I didn't want to get up and go turn on the lights. Hair so I had my... up, hand in <laughs> hair. I've been in a haircut. Buck Disney, in
1: weeks. those yachts. I know, it's all about.
2: I <laughs> I know. I know. The Bible,
1: Bible, oh, I'm guys. I'm
2: turning into this like street preacher. I'm losing my mind. Yeah, I love
1: it. Just embrace it. Embrace it.
2: I know. One of the reasons
0: that I am so drawn to working on and with Jewish tradition and Jewish community, and and I imagine you all resonate with this, Abe, is that in these troubling times, Jewish community is small enough, even worldwide, that it's of a scale that a reasonable number of humans can affect it in a significant way.
2: Yes. In a way
0: that most other systems in our life Are not completely so part of the draw to Talmud and Torah is that it's possible to expect that me or someone I know or a group of friends might actually impact the trajectory of Judaism and Jewry. Yes. In a way that is more significant than we might impact um, Say, society like, at large. Exactly. Say,
1: like politics, which right, we've exactly. discovered we can't affect at all.
2: Well, but you th- here's the thing in the Jewish community, given the integration for better and very much in cases for worse of the Jewish community into the high echelons of power, it is politics. And it can have a political influence. Like what I always say, maybe this is too much of a tangent, but like um, with Jewish journalism, Jewish specific media, like I'm on the board of Jewish Currents. One of the reasons I'm on the board of Jewish Currents is because I believe there needs to be a robust Jewish media out there. Why? Well, two words, Jeffrey Epstein. This was a guy who the Jewish community media should have caught. And probably, I don't have any proof of this, but I'm sure there were plenty of journalists who had hefty leads on what was going on with him. But because of the model we've set up and because this whole thing is like crumbling under the weight of, I'm sorry, I'm turning into a total like apocalyptic street preacher. No, keep going. But the point is like, you don't, you have this media, this niche media, this community media that is not doing its job and not actually monitoring the community it's supposed to monitor. It's all donor based. It's all propped up that way. And then politics is what I'm trying to say. Politics ends up being affected by what happens within the Jewish community. You know, the global politics gets affected by what people within the Jewish community are refusing to actually take action on. And it it bleeds out. Like there's so many other examples of that in recent politics and media where you have people, it's not just that they're Jews, you have people who are very active in the Jewish community, like who are defining, who are like setting the agenda either because they're big intellectuals in that world or because they're big donors. I mean, those are, these are two big reasons. You end up with this class of people who are a little untouchable. And that's a whole other thing. But I, I could talk about that all
0: day. Right. I mean, it'll make a good segue. Next week, we are having some folks from the JLF, the Jewish Liberation Fund, come on the show, which is a funding org sort of specifically trying to address the way in which such a small number of people control funding within the Jewish community. So that'll yeah. be a whole thing we'll talk about yeah. next week, which I think is a good. I think that's a great place to boop put a button on this conversation we can stop Palpatining you use your anger (laughs)
1: this was great thanks for coming on this was yes it
2: was a pleasure to have you on the show thank you i appreciate that have me back anytime i'm writing something right now that'll get published on a big outlet at some point and i'll email it to you maybe it'll be interesting and we can do this again great
0: love it it's so easy to make an episode with you so it's always a pleasure to have you on
2: Thanks everybody. Oh and buy, uh, go to buy my book. I didn't even talk about my book, uh, which yeah. is fine, but um you should go to abrahamreesman.com. You can learn about all my stuff including my book and my articles. Go check
0: out Abe's stuff. Also, you know, continue to be hi how are you fans. Continue to love us listeners. Continue to pay attention to me. I will die if you don't uh i subsist solely i am a psychic vampire
2: <laughs> i love how in 2022 everybody's just sort of laying it all out there now like
1: yeah something true. about
2: the turning of this calendar year everyone i know is just like you know what no more pretense we love, love to see that. it yeah we will talk to you
0: patrons we'll talk to you in the patron app. general public we will talk to you next week when we have folks from the jlf on and you know we love you we adore you. We treasure you. And Shavuot Tov.
1: Shavu tov.